0: All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, David, for that very kind introduction. And uh, it's really a, an honor and a, a privilege to be here today uh, to speak with you all on uh, such an exciting topic. Uh, David really set the stage nicely. Um, you know, we are in a situation now where we have an embarrassment of riches, really, with respect to AML after many, many years of, of uh, struggling Uh, with um, uh, therapies that have not moved the needle. We now have um, uh, a huge number uh, to to, to use and to evaluate, and so I'd like to fairly quickly go through uh, these options, these new therapies, how they work, when we think about using them, and um, I I hope this uh, can be helpful. So let's uh, flash back all the way to a completely different era in AML, March of 2017, Uh, so if we just go right before that prehistoric era, um, we had a very binary approach to the treatment of this disease. Essentially, when a patient had newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, there was one question that was important to ask and answer, and that was, is the patient a candidate for induction chemotherapy, the 7 plus 3 regimen? Because if they were, then certainly that was the thing to do. But the reason this decision was so crucial and important is that answering no to that question cast the patient into a very difficult situation where not only was there no uh, um, FDA-approved therapy for, for most of these patients, but there was, in a lot of cases, no realistic hope that a patient could do well if you answered no to that question. So we are uh, now in an era where things have certainly changed, but what's interesting, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, is that the sort of weight and importance of this question hasn't really gone away, Um, and for a lot of, in a lot of ways, you can understand why, because for decades this question was essentially asking whether a patient had any chance of living or dying, but now in the new era that we're in, I think we really need to reevaluate the importance of the question of whether a patient could be a candidate for intensive chemotherapy, because in the, in the presence of options, I think the question takes on uh, some very different uh, implications. So... Uh, As I suggested, 2017, March of 2017 hit and there uh, uh, um, uh, has been big changes in our field and um, if it looks like we're running out of room on the right end of the slide, that's actually appropriate because it gives you a little bit of context as to the desert that we were um, operating under for many, many years uh, since uh, since the first paper that showed the efficacy of seven plus three. So besides some sort of on and off again um, uh, a relationship with gemtuzumab. Starting in 2017, as David um, suggested, we've had, four, uh, we've had eight approved therapies and uh, we think probably more to come in the near future. So how do we sort of think about these and, and how are we going to talk about them this afternoon? I like to think of them in two broad care- categories. Um, So we can think of genomically targeted personalized therapies and then we can think about non-genomically targeted therapies and so I think there's different implications for both of these um, which we'll get to. But when we talk about uh, personalized, genomically defined personalized therapies, we'll talk about FLT3 and IDH. And then we'll talk about a, a variety of other non-genomically targeted therapies um, in that section. So let's start with the first category, the genomically targeted personalized therapies. And just for context, I think this is a fascinating way that we uh, arrived at this moment. Um, if we, It's been almost 10 years since the first patient with cancer had whole genome sequencing performed, and that patient happened to be a patient with acute myeloid leukemia. And since then, there have been other papers published of multiple patients who have had whole genome or whole exome sequencing. And as a result of all this, we now have panels of targeted resequencing that we Uh, typically do, most of us typically do as standard of care at the time of diagnosis for an AML patient. So there's this wealth of information, genomic information that we get as standard of care every time we uh, start to treat a patient. So you can understand why it has become so logical that that we pay so much attention to this information and many people think that the solution to this problem of, of AML is going to be A, understanding the genomic landscape of each patient, and then B, targeting the different uh, mutations that each patient has. And so we'll start by talking about FLT3. Our knowledge of FLT3 goes back many years before the era of whole genome sequencing and next gen sequencing. We've known that FLT3 is a common mutation in AML for many, many years, and we know that it's um, about, it it, um, afflicts about a third of patients who have normal cytogenetics. And we also know that when this mutation occurs, patients do worse. These are the patients that typically have very proliferative disease. Interestingly, the bad outcomes from FLT3 positive patients are not necessarily due to refractory disease. So these patients with induction chemotherapy don't have typically a harder time getting into a remission compared to FLT3 wild type patients. The, the, the reason these patients do poorly is typically relapse. And that is what uh, limits them. So mitostorin is a multi-kinase inhibitor. It also, among a laundry list of targets of kinases that it inhibits, includes flt 3 itd and TKD. And in a randomized study of younger, newly diagnosed AML patients who were fit for induction chemotherapy with 7 plus 3, they were randomized to receive 7 plus 3 plus a placebo versus 7 plus 3, plus mitostorin. and the midostaurin was given days eight through 21 of induction, as well as some consolidation, and there was a, a maintenance phase of the study as well. And this is the study that ushered in the new era that we're, that we're in now with, uh, with its approval in March of 2017. And, and this is sort of the bottom line data of what was called the RATIFY study. As you can see, a significant overall survival benefit between the two arms, the midostaurin versus the placebo arm. And um, you can see that there was a 23% reduced risk of death in patients who received the Um Interestingly, Patients, uh, at the so this was a, a long study, took a long time to accrue, and it kind of crossed a couple different treatment eras. And by the time the study was maturing, it was becoming much more common for patients with a FLT3 mutation to go to a transplant. And so there was some um, censoring that needed to happen to account for that. And many of us who think of transplant as the great equalizer—you know—it doesn't matter what your disease biology is. If you get in remission and go to a transplant, it should sort of um, level the playing field. What was very interesting to find is that that was not true. That patients with a FLT three who got myelostoyrin and went to a transplant. Compared to patients with a FLT3 who did not get midostaurin and went to a transplant, there, was different, there were differences in those outcomes. So I think the important message is it is really crucial to understand a patient's disease biology at diagnosis because the things you do or don't do can affect outcomes even in the setting of a transplant. Okay, so moving on to another FLT3 inhibitor, this is giltaritinib. Giltaritinib is sort of a next-generation FLT3 inhibitor. It's highly specific for FLT3 compared to midostaurin, which, as I said, affects a, a, a lot of other kinases as well. And in the ADMIRAL trial, which, interestingly, we haven't uh, officially heard about, but, but you can read about on the package insert from the uh, FDA approval of, of this therapy, um, in 138 relapsed FLT3 patients with a median age of, of 60, um, there was a a response rate, a CR or CRH rate of about 21%, median duration of remission of about 4.6 months. And as I said, uh, this uh, data uh, led to the recent approval of giltaritinib for FLT3 positive relapsed AML patients. Um, Okay, so moving on to uh, another gene target, isocitrate dehydrogenase has been a fascinating story. So back to that first patient, who had whole genome sequencing uh, with, with AML. Turned out that patient had a mutation in this gene called IDH1. And that was very surprising because although IDH was known to be a gene that was mutated in other types of cancer, uh, it had, at the time had, was not understood to be um, uh, recurrently mutated in patients with AML. But after the identification of this one patient with an IDH mutation, it was noted that about 15 to 20% of AML patients actually have mutations in IDH1, or the isoform of IDH1, IDH2. And so IDH is a a gene that's involved in metabolism, in in the, the Krebs cycle. If you remember back to your biochemistry days, IDH is responsible for the conversion of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. And this is just one of the many steps, if you remember back in the Krebs cycle, that a cell would use to to generate energy. In the presence of a mutation in IDH1 or IDH2, which is in the mitochondria, IDH1 is in the cytoplasm, you overproduce a a chemically, very structurally similar enzyme to alpha-ketoglutarate called 2-hydroxyglutarate. And you overproduce it in such incredibly high levels that you just outcompete all the enzymes in the body that are dependent on alpha-ketoglutarate with this uh, similar uh, 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 compound called 2-hydroxyglutarate. And that has a variety of effects on disabling certain enzymes in the body and and, in cells that prevents the proper maturation of a cell and can lead to leukemogenesis or the development of AML. Um, it is thought that this is a. Uh, it was thought from early on that this would be a druggable mutation, and that there would be the potential that this could trigger differentiation. And in fact, when you look at enasidenib, which targets IDH two, and ivosidenib, which targets IDH one, both of these drugs are now FDA approved for the appropriate um, situation: IDH two or IDH one, respectively, relapsed uh, AML for use with a, a single uh, therapy, the, this, this orally available therapy. And you can see uh, the response rates in the 30% range with overall survival about nine months. So that's sort of the expectation for, the, for this therapy. Uh, One needs to consider this this special toxicity that can occur or toxicities that can occur. I alluded to this before, but differentiation syndrome can be triggered uh, when you target IDH and that's something that happens relatively rarely but needs a a lot of um, special attention and, and, um, uh, and therapeutic intervention. Leukocytosis related or unrelated to the differentiation syndrome can occur. N-acidinib causes an indirect hyperbilirubinemia, which is of no clinical consequence, really can be ignored. And there's some QT prolongation in ivacidinib that we don't see in N-acidinib. Okay, let's move on to the non-genomically targeted therapies. So CPX351, or liposomal uh, citerabine donorubicin, this is 7 plus 3 packaged up in a fixed 5 to 1 molar ratio of the citerabine and donorubicin. And the thinking is that perhaps this will have less toxicity, more bioavailability, more um, uh, uh, um, concentration in in the bone marrow. And um, in an initial randomized study, um, overall with uh, older patients that receive 7 plus 3, plus the CPX351, it was a negative study, but there was an unplanned cohort of patients that had secondary AML, so as defined as AML from an antecedent hematologic condition or a treatment-related AML, and they did have a survival benefit. So the investigators and the company, they uh, did another prospective clinical trial just focusing on this population of patients, and they once again found in in this uh, study that was designed to answer this question specifically a real clinical benefit. So there was an improvement in response rates, as shown on the left, um, uh, for, uh, with respect to CR and also looking at CR plus CRI, as well as overall survival when you look at um, uh, the CPX351 versus standard 7 plus 3. Um, and, and, and what I'm not showing you is that toxicity was a little bit better in the CPX351 arms as well, with a, a, a lower early death rate uh, compared to 7 plus 3. Gemtuzumab, ozogamycin, um, is an antibody drug conjugate. It takes advantage of CD33, which is expressed on many, if not most, AML blasts. And it targets CD33 and is linked to this poison called calichimiacin. So, and and calichimiacin is a a very toxic compound, but when introduced specifically into the target cells of interest, you can have some selective therapeutic death. And so that's uh, essentially what gemtuzumab is designed to do. Uh, if you remember back to that timeline, gemtuzumab has has had this interesting um, history of being uh, an approved drug and then withdrawn and now reapproved. And this is a meta-analysis I'm showing you of several different studies uh, in AML that use gemtuzumab. Now, those of you who look at the AML literature, you know there are not many meta-analyses in you know essentially a rare disease. And so this is pretty powerful, especially when you look at the patients who are better able to respond. So um, you can see that there's uh, one side of this uh, plot that favors more gemtuzumab the other uh, and as clo- the closer you get to the line in the middle the sort of less distinct the the differences are and you can see a pretty prominent uh, um, improvement in outcomes specifically in patients who have good risk cytogenetics. And so, uh, although the FDA label uh, states that gemtuzumab could be appropriate for any CD33 positive AML patient, relapsed, upfront, uh, single agent, or with other therapies, most of us are now sort of thinking about using this more with the the good risk patients at the time of diagnosis in combination with seven plus three. Glastigib is a small molecule inhibitor uh, that inhibits something called smoothened, which is in the hedgehog signaling pathway. Hedgehog signaling pathway is a pathway that cells mostly use during just fetal development to make limbs and fingers and things like that. And then after birth, this pathway in most cells is deactivated. But cancer cells can hijack this pathway and, over, uh, and use it to overexpress, uh, to overexpress it to lead to their uh, uh, cell growth inappropriately. And so the thinking is is that if you can target that, you can specifically target some um, of, the, uh, uh, of the cancer cells. Um, and, and specifically, there's some literature about how this may be more prevalent in the leukemia stem cell population. So in a randomized phase 2 study of untreated, unfit, older AML patients to receive either lodociterabine alone or lodociterabine plus glastigib, there was an improvement in overall survival. So, response rates are shown on the right, and you can see that in the low... This is a small study, um, and in the low arm, there was probably fewer responses than we would expect in a normal control arm, um, but uh, um, uh, this was a, a randomized controlled study, and there was an improvement in response rate um, and an improvement in overall survival, as you can see, as well. Now, some may question whether the clinical significance of the amount of time that this afforded patients is, uh, is, is um, of value, but certainly the, the study was powered to look at uh, statistical significance with respect to survival. It was significant, and it's now an approved therapy. And then finally, I want to spend some time talking about venetoclax. So venetoclax, I think uh, most of us agree, has really revolutionized the treatment of this disease and David alluded to this a bit, um, I think, on our inpatient service. You know, this has really eroded uh, significantly into the patients who are getting traditional chemotherapy. Um, venetoclax is a highly specific inhibitor of BCL2, and um, there's, we've shown some recent data that this can really effectively target the leukemia stem cell population. And in early phase clinical trials, uncontrolled, Um, we have shown that venetoclax with a chemotherapy backbone, either a hypomethylator or lodocytarabine, can result in really fairly dramatic response rates and um, uh, durability of responses and survival. Now, these, uh, as opposed to most of the other studies I've shown you this afternoon, this is not a controlled study. Uh, That study has been fully accrued and we uh, await those outcomes. Um, But this is the data we have so far. So when we just focus on the venetoclax plus the hypomethylating agents, either azacitidine or decitabine, you can see CR plus CRI rates in the neighborhood of 70%. Now, when I see a patient uh, or saw patients before the venetoclax era who weren't fit for chemotherapy and we talked about a hypomethylator alone, usually my conversation was somewhere around a 30% response rate was the expectation. So again, not a controlled study here, and we await those results, but certainly better than what we would expect from the controlled population. And what's also really um, uh, uh, exciting is when you look across different biological subgroups that are traditional adverse risk, bad cytogenetics, patients with secondary AML, patients with particular mutations like P53 and FLT 3 there doesn't seem to be the decreased response rates that you would expect to see in an era of chemotherapy with these venetoclax-based strategies. So again, small numbers, uncontrolled, but very exciting that perhaps the mechanism through which this works is sort of agnostic to the bad biology that we uh, know and fear in the context of chemotherapy. Um, This slide just shows what I alluded to before, that really response duration and overall survival, again, a little hard to put this in context without a control arm, but certainly better than what we might expect, at least looking at the azacitidine patients, median of about a um, 22-month remission duration, and in some cases when you take out the non-responders, and just look at the survival of the patients who responded, which is the majority of the patients, because most patients did have a response, we're seeing things like, you know, no, uh, not having yet reached the median overall survival, with fairly long follow-up uh, in some subsets, particularly the azacytidine subset of the venetoclax uh, patient study. So um, I think I think lots and lots of reasons to be optimistic. That was sort of a a quick tour de force of uh, the new landscape of AML, Um, but hopefully that's helpful, and and I know we all look forward to the very near future where we're going to learn how to use these even better and, and, and also have even better therapies to add into the mix. So thanks so much for your attention.